Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We'll take an honest look at the current administration, expose the existential threats to America, and there are some. Today we'll speak with Harmeet Dillon. Those of you who watch Fox know who she is. Nationally recognized lawyer, trusted boardroom advisor, and a passionate advocate for individual, corporate, and institutional clients across numerous industries and walks of life. Her focus is in commercial litigation, employment law, First Amendment rights, and election law matters. She's also astute politically. Uh, first few things I'd like to discuss. Kamala Harris is the pick. Right. You and I haven't rehearsed any of this. What's your reaction? Given the current political climate, the social climate, uh, it is the safest choice to both appease your base, but to have the establishment all right and fine with it. It is quite interesting, though, how in the, I think it was maybe the first debate, she all but called him a racist. Yeah. And so now he yeah, we got to take care of that little thing. Right. So maybe they ironed that out. and Maybe yeah. there was this whole agreement, agree to disagree, either agree to disagree that he is or isn't, or, hey, that was just, you know, debate talk everything's fine. Um, and so we'll see what, what, what that's all about. But, I mean, you know, uh, we talked about it last week. You mentioned this, that unlike any other election that I've seen or have been alive or aware of, this is the biggest election that is uh, kind of like an indictment on the incumbent president that I've ever seen in my lifetime, that this is really all about whether you like President Trump or whether you don't like President Trump. Yeah, it's Trump. really about the incumbent. And it really is. Exactly. And so I think he took a pick. That wouldn't cause a stir or ripple the waters at all with the base or with even the extreme left. And it was the safest pick. It was probably the best pick for him. Well, we'll see. Um, I'm still sorting it out. But uh, we're lucky today we have Harmeet Dillon. And she worked with Kamala for years. Oh, great. In the same office. So she'll she'll fill us in. Um, I was on uh, Fox last night. And my first reaction was very interesting. Because the first thing to note is this woman, she's strong, she's got energy, she's a generation younger than Joe Biden. She's great when she's out on the stump and giving speeches. and But she did miserably in the primary. Right. She had the biggest crowd to start off her race of anybody in the primary. And then just collapsed. I think the last thing, she got like 4% of the vote or something. I mean, I thought when we started that she was the odds-on candidate, that she'd kind of sweep and, and get do really well. She didn't. For some reason, she didn't uh, appeal to a lot of voters. She didn't appeal to a lot of minority voters. Now, two people I've heard comments say, because one of the explanations, what happened, one of the questions, what happened with the African-American community? And I've heard two people say she is not of a descendant of slaves. Okay. She is not, you know, a descendant of the Jim Crow era. Her mother uh, is East Indian or Indian, uh, East Indian, I think, from Asia. Her father's Jamaican. And according to two people I heard on TV, was just boasted about being descended from a, a big slave owner okay. in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And so this is, quote, under the category, genuine black, genuine African-American. Right. She doesn't make it. Is there anything to that? Uh, I don't know. I All don't right. think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Right. Don't think so. Right. Because in the, in, in the, in the in black community, uh, you know, honestly, anyone who's not white, for the most part, it's pretty much accepted as black, okay. to, you know, whether you're Jamaican. And, yeah, like, or just, Barack Obama. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Married a white man, does that matter? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, all right. People all look right. at it like, oh, I don't, but it's not. Yeah, all right. All right. I'm, just, I'm just uh, dealing with some of I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, some kind of threshold questions. But um, let's, it's clearly she has energy. She has some, some youth uh, relatively. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is. What she, if she campaigns a lot, I said last night, this is the first time I can think of that the announcement of the vice president overshadowed 
you know, the, the, the nominee. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yep. now, you know, the Palin thing was a big splash mm-hmm. and kind of made her the center of attention. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say she overshadowed, but just in terms of sheer personality and presence, she overshadows Biden. Sure. And now, the, the, what, also, another difference between the Palin thing is the fact that, for the most part, I'm not sure if a lot of, of mainstream America knew who she was yeah. until um, McCain introduced her as the VP uh, choice. You mean Palin, yeah. Co- correct. Yeah. Uh, but most yeah. Democrats don't, yeah. you know, yeah. Kamala Harris. But what does she do now? Does she go into a bunker, too? I think the exact opposite. I think so she if, gets out there. If I were if I were running the Biden campaign, she'd be the only one talking. Well, see, <laughs> isn't that isn't that odd though? Yes. Then she really becomes the campaign. Yes, and that's what I would do. And that, see, there are a lot of people who think he's not going to finish first term, and he well, won't do a second term. Right. He'll be older when he assumes office if he wins than Reagan was when Reagan left. Wow. He will be older when he steps in, takes the oath, than Reagan was when he left, and Reagan was old. Right. So there certainly won't be a second term. Will there be a full first term? So we, I think you got to look at her. I mean, I, I was listening to Carl Rove who said, you know, president can't focus on her. He's got to just focus on Biden. I, I don't know. You know, she may very likely be, I don't know, very likely. She may be the president of the United States. Right. Joe steps aside or mental incompetence or whatever. So I think that needs to be paid attention. To. The only trouble President Trump will fall into if he focuses on her is if he focuses on her in the Trumpian way, he has to yeah, back yeah, yeah. off no, no, a little no, bit. No, 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 right. focus on no. He's got to take it on the issues. And I think yeah. the best case I heard against her was Liz Cheney, who said, in terms of voting, she is, you know, there with uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and, and Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. about as left as you can get. Right. We're talking about the end of fracking and drilling. We're talking about the Green New Deal. We're talking about um, unlimited benefits for uh, illegals. Uh, we're talking about that whole gamut. And so the case could be made that maybe this is a good choice for Joe on the grounds you were talking about. Mm-hmm. But this is a cho- this is another move to the left. Sure, sure. You know, unless she hedges. But we'll talk more with uh, Harmeet about this. And we'll watch as things develop. Because she's now going to get drilled. At least I hope. I don't know. I mean, you know, the press has been pretty easy on Biden. Mm-hmm. It may be pretty easy on her. They're, you know, blowing the trumpets about how great she is. Absolutely. Just a couple other things. Um, before we go to Harmeet, um, uh, I, I, how many people are like me? I was watching the TV and I saw, um, you know, people, rioters and cops and beating up, beating up on each uh, other. And I said, man, Beirut. But it was Portland. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many other Americans did that. Well, did you see Chicago a few days ago? Yeah, sure. I mean, guys, they're riding in the streets. They're breaking into Apple stores and beating, uh, fighting cops. And- I, I thought Beirut was – I thought Portland was Beirut. Yeah. I thought showing me pictures of Portland was showing me pictures of Beirut. Yeah. And then I examined it more closely the next time they were juxtaposition. And actually, there's more confrontation with the police in Portland and Chicago mm. than there is in Beirut. When the police moved in Beirut, people backed off, ran the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not in Portland and Chicago. Yeah. So uh, what are they going to do? What's uh, what's what are Kamala and Kamala and uh, Joe going to do on the police thing? She was uh, regarded as pretty pro police when she was a prosecutor. Prosecutor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out last night. This is just a snapshot, but in in 2019, she get this. She had a higher rating from the national police organizations than she did from the ACLU. Right. Well, I think that's a bit anomalous, but mm-hmm. uh, but um, she was apparently pretty pro police. But anyway, the, the point is, Portland, Chicago, Seattle, 
You know, we, we can't shake our finger at uh, demonstrations in Beirut. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, right. And I just want to say again, because I was talking to a friend who's in the police business, executive in the police business, old, old friend, that you, know, you can't do this while demonstrators and then there are a few anarchists. If you're demonstrating and it's getting crazy and they're breaking into stores and they're blowing up things and shooting and lasers at cops, you go home. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because you're going to be tied into that. You know, last so. week we talked about optimism and pessimism. One of the things that make me optimistic is I have seen on the news reports of, you know, people breaking into stores and uh, protesters stopping the people, like physically stopping them from doing it. I've seen some trying yeah. and I've seen some mis- exactly. mistreated. And, yeah. and I've seen some frustrated. But, you know, like you said, again, you know, if you are truly demonstrating <laughs> anti-violence and police brutality, I don't understand how breaking into an Apple store. Yeah, no kidding. Shows your frustration with police. No, no, or to say nothing about George Floyd. Right, right. It's a long, long time ago exactly. now. Exactly. All right, let's get to the real news, which is the Big Ten. Apparently, is not going to play football, uh, and it looks like the Pac-12. Right. Two, where does that leave us? Not clear, it seems to me, because the SEC is going to play. I saw Coach O, the LSU coach, Coach Ogeron, and he said, we're ready, we're playing. Uh, Nick Saban wants to play at Alabama. Mm-hmm. Looks like the AAC wants to play. I know Dabo Sweeney at, Sweeney at uh, Clemson wants to play. Sure. So we'll see. But I, but I made a point last night. Brett Bear asked me, and I, I said, look, this isn't just football. This is uh, this is indicative of a, a geographical, mm-hmm. cultural, and small p political divide. Mm-hmm. You got the uh, coastal west, and let's face it, the Pac-10 is California, Oregon, and Washington. Oh, absolutely. A couple yep. other teams thrown in, but it's basically those three. And the northern Midwest, and you got these doctors in charge of these universities up there. And it's, you know, it's more liberal country. In the meantime, who's holding out for football? SEC, AAC, Trump country. Mm-hmm. Maybe Big 12. We'll see. So, um, you know, the president was pushing very hard for the football. And um, and I'm, I'm with him. And the the real argument that I would make, I mean, just, just on the face, apart from a lot of other things, is I said last night, first thing I said was somebody do, do a study right now of the players on the Michigan football team who are not going to play mm-hmm. and the players on the uh, Clemson team who are going to play. Six months, let's see who has more COVID. Right. That's and I'm telling you that it's going to be more in Michigan than in Alabama. Right. Because those guys in Alabama or Clemson are under supervision. Mm-hmm. Those coaches do not want them to get COVID, and they're going to keep them from getting COVID. They'll be supervised. They'll have their hours, et cetera. Doctors will be called in in spades. They'll be tested regularly. Tested regularly. What about students who aren't playing? You know, they'll wander around Ann Arbor, wander around, you know, East Lansing, Columbus, maybe hit some bars. I, you know, I don't know. And home. If and home. Doing virtual, right. Yeah. But I'll bet you that the kids, the young men at those schools uh, who are are playing are going to have a better record on COVID. Somebody needs to do that study. That's a great idea. Don't you think that's a good that's idea? A I think idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. But you know who I thought was most eloquent on this was, uh, you ever heard of a guy named Herschel Walker? Yes. <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest college football players ever. University of Georgia. Georgia man. freshman, Heisman winner as a freshman. Uh, he said this. He said, I'm sad because kids need to play. Uh, kids need to play, and this is such a controlled environment they have to be in. You're going to be with some of the best doctors. Kids are tested, what, twice a week? They're not playing, and the kids are at home. They're in an environment where they, they'll get sick. Uh, I said, what are you going to do? He said, you're going to send them home? Because if school's not in, what are they going to do? Are you going to destroy these kids and mope around campus, get depressed? You know, they're losing their livelihoods right now. Uh, I thought Herschel was really eloquent. Uh, he said, um, 
fifth-year seniors will not have another chance to get to the pro level. And I think that because of politics, because look at the places who've decided not to play, look who are the areas that said not to play. It's my point. Um, he said it's sad that we have done this right here and, and what hurts. Um, and then the uh, person writing this article says the Big Ten is composed of schools primarily in the upper Midwest and Northeast. Pac-12 are mostly along the Pacific Coast. Other Power Five conferences, including SEC and ACC, are dominated by conservative voting red states. They've indicated they're likely to play. That's my point. Um, Response to the coronavirus has caused political divisions. Many on the right seeing the response overblown or at least hurtful to business. Many on the left calling for stricter measures to control the virus. So, you know, uh, Herschel said at one point in the interview, I didn't see it in this transcript, you know, what are we doing with the kids? You know, not letting them play football, not letting them go back to school. Um, let's say we're on a battlefield, we're practicing triage, and you got to choose between, you know, possibly more 78-year-olds dying from COVID or more young people being out of school uh, and out of school and out of the academic, uh, what they've worked with academically, socially, uh, health-wise, suicide, child abuse, all that. I'm talking about school kids now. What are we doing to our young people? Are we sacrificing our young people um, to prevent uh, further sacrifice of the older people? Because nothing's free here. And if you do everything possible not to bring any harm to 78-year-olds, you may end up doing a lot of harm to young people. And I think young people get the nod here. It shouldn't be a choice. It doesn't have to be. But there aren't a lot of 78-year-old football players, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, there's not risk, risk there. Anyway, people just seem to kind of shrug their shoulders. Well, oh, another year without school or another year without physical presence. And again, who are they hurting the most? They're hurting the most the kids who need school the most, who need this opportunity the most. Poor kids, mostly minority kids. Um, and they're not getting this opportunity. Well, you've got Justin Fields, quarterback uh, at Ohio State. Maybe the best the player in the country. Yeah. Or, uh, Going to be a top 10 yeah. pick, pick sure. this season. Yeah, and sure. he's like, hey, I won't get, I won't get this opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, again, he's, he'll likely declare for the NFL draft next year as opposed to stay in college one more year. For 15, right. But. Now, one other thing they're saying is we'll, we'll play in the spring. What do you think of that? I, I like that option. That's a that's a fine option to play in the spring. The only difference is is that you know as long as the NFL makes some concessions for kids who are going to be playing in the spring, won't be able to do a combine. But they could use the college football season as a combine for a lot of the kids, like Justin Fields. All right. Well, I'm going to show my greater expertise here than okay. you because okay. I thought this because this is all this is all I think about. Uh, Urban Meyer said this morning what I've been thinking. Former coach of Ohio State he said you can't have a spring football season than a foot fall football season. You just can't have it. Around, yeah. It's just too much. Right. You start in what, February? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it really can't start in February. A lot too of these cold. places. Too cold. So March, April, May, mm-hmm. and then you want to start them up again in July? That's Physical wear and That's tear? A good point. No, I think it's it's almost impossible. Plus, you know, you engage in this fiction that they're students, you know. This is why I'm okay with the Big Ten and, and, and Pac-12 decision not to play. It's because if a lot of schools are going to be going virtual anyway – how do you then justify bringing football players on campus, not for school and not for academics, but to play football, but then you have this facade of student-athletes? When a lot of these guys, you know, honestly, if it, if it wasn't for football, they wouldn't go to a lot of these schools. They, they, they're going to the Ohio State University. They're going to LSU. They're going to UCLA because they play football. And, you know, so they bring them in. The NCAA refuses to pay them or even allow them to make money, not just off of jerseys, but suppose if it, me, I'm, go, I play at Maryland or Penn State or wherever, and I want to come back to 
Maryland and do a football clinic for my high school or for my boys club team as yeah. kind of a service and they want to pay me a stipend, I'm an NCAA violation there. But how do you justify bringing them to campus when school's virtual just to play football, but then you won't allow them to use that skill to make money uh, or even give them a cash stipend? Well, yeah, well, all right, man, it raises the cash stipend thing, I think, more seriously. But, I mean, you're acting like the rest of the students who come back to school are coming because they're going to be – you know, road scholars. You know, right. let's face it. Motivation for football ain't the worst motivation to go back to college. You know, right. a lot of guys right. are going there so they can get away from their parents, so they can drink a lot, so they can go pop, they can date, they can just cruise through. They got nothing else to do. Right. I mean, I was, I'm a college professor. Sure, no, right, right. Some of serious students, a lot are not. Yeah. Biden no, right. time. I get it. You know, football is a real thing. That's and right. It's That's a, true. And it's a career thing. Yeah. Plus, it does bring in, it's not the main argument, it brings in a ton of revenue for these That's schools, right. which does support your road scholars. Right. So, right. anyway. All right. The debate goes on. But you can see by the division of time here in these opening comments what, what's on my mind. Let's talk to Hermit. <laughs> what do you say? You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Harmeet Dillon. Harmeet, welcome to the show. Yes. Hi. How are you? Good. Blessings on you. Thank you. So uh, I want to talk to you about now this, quote, old piece, the piece on higher ed, which I want to get to um, with you because I, it was it was so good. Not just because you quoted me, but it just it's so good that uh, you nailed it. But um, I watched you last night on Laura and uh, you. you have this special perch, special uh, perspective on Kamala, I'm trying to pronounce it right, Kamala Harris. And could you talk about that for a few minutes? You may be tired of doing this already, but tell us um, tell us about Kamala Harris and what we should expect. Sure. Well, it's funny how life works and we cross paths uh, with, you know, people from very different worlds. But I had moved to San Francisco area in, uh, you know, around 2000 and then moved to the city in 2003. And I was fairly new to the city. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, who had served with Kamala Harris in the uh, district attorney's office, invited me to a fundraiser for her. And I didn't know anything about her. But her platform was that she was an assistant district attorney and she was running to challenge her boss, uh, Terrence Hallinan, for district attorney. So I checked it out. And um, you know, I was already sort of beginning to get involved in the SFGOP at that time. And I learned that uh, Terry Hallinan was, uh, you know, one of uh, a few brothers who are, you know, sort of far left-wing activists in San Francisco. And he was a terrible district attorney. I mean, not just sort of philosophically like today's far left, young, Soros-funded DAs who are ideological. I mean, just, you know, like letting things go and office with chaos and just, you know, structurally terrible. And so for a assistant district attorney to challenge her boss like that, that impressed me as, my God, things must be terrible there. And so, you know, I met her in that context and I ended up supporting her because my friend uh, invited me to that event. I didn't know her, but I was impressed with what she had to say about, frankly, being tough on crime. And so she got elected and that was kind of an upset. What year are we, Harmeet? Approximately 2003. Okay. So, you know, he had been the DA for over a decade. So it was a big upset. But what I then learned is, you know, one of the reasons why she was able to succeed in that upset is because she was uh, blessed with the patronage of uh, Willie Brown, our former 
um, our former speaker, our former mayor, a very, very powerful political figure in uh, California. Even today, he is in his 80s, uh, the puppet master of San Francisco. And nobody gets elected in San Francisco to a higher office without his blessing. And that's been true for for years. Well, she was one of his girlfriends, as he likes to put it. Um, He's a married man, but he openly brags about his numerous conquests. Uh, uh, uh. So, um, you know, that is how she got appointed when he was the uh, speaker to a couple of paid boards and commissions in California that are handed out by the legislature. And then this job was her first elected office. And, um, you know, she was in her 30s at the time. And so she had a very meteoric rise to power after that. But what, what I distinctly recall from that episode was almost immediately after being elected, she quickly betrayed uh, most of her promises to the voters and really, you know, didn't pay much attention to the job other than racking up convictions on lower level drug offenses. So in other words, yeah. boosting her numbers by going after, frankly, minority plaintiffs, uh, sorry, defendants, and sort of getting into that, uh, you know, lower hanging fruit. She also threatened gleefully parents with arrest for, for the truancy of their children and was a, was pretty divisive. I, I remember even back then she was kind of, you know, the the left that helped uh, get her elected and the right, by the way, she was the favored candidate of the Republicans in that election because Terry Hallinan was so bad, you know, people were shaking their heads. And then I think within a very short time after her election, there was a triple murder of a family by uh, an illegal alien. She did not seek, seek serious punishment in that case. And then there was a cop killing and she refused to seek the death penalty. But what was striking then and is striking now is she didn't just come out and say, you know what, I don't believe in the death penalty, uh, by the way, which would have been nice for us voters to know because I wouldn't have voted for her. Um, but she, she sort of dithered over it for months and then she finally came out and said, I don't believe in it. So she kind of probably, probably poll tested it and figured out how is it going to play in her future races and decided it was going to be okay to take that position. So came out against the death penalty. And that was the last time I think anybody gave her the benefit of the doubt in the moderate to conservative side in California. And then after that, uh, you know, she has been, like I said, meteoric. She, she won the most closely contested race in the uh, catastrophic year that Meg Whitman ran for governor. I think that was uh, 2012, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And, um, and, and the one race where we almost won as Republicans was attorney general. And we had Steve Cooley, uh, who was the district attorney of Los Angeles County. He ran against her and he only lost by 2,000 votes statewide. And, you know, sorry to go on a detour here, but that was the first instance that I recall of questions being raised about the integrity of the ballots in the election in that case. There were were instances of a couple of uh, boxes of ballots allegedly found floating in the bay uh, in San Francisco area. Um, You know, the, the counting went on for weeks after the election. That was a, that was an election that was not called until weeks after election day. And Steve didn't concede. And I, I worked very hard for Steve in that election. And she won. And it was crushing for conservatives because we knew her record from San Francisco and what a betrayal she had been to the promises she made when she ran for office. Um, so yeah, she made she made the position of attorney general. Uh, and uh, she succeeded from Jerry Brown, who became our governor in that election. And um, or in the election, actually, just the year prior. And uh, so from there on, um, again, 
got the job, began focusing on her next job. And now, as you can imagine, through the years, I live in San Francisco. She was from San Francisco. She was single at the time and living in San Francisco. We went to a lot of the same um, types of events. And, uh, you know, I was certainly invited to a lot of her fundraisers. And I was also at a lot of bar events where she was glad handing and working the room and, you know, making her canned speeches, same speech just about every time. And, um, you know, I, I came up against her as uh, in her job as attorney general in a case where I was suing the state on behalf of a religious minority plaintiff. So I'll, uh, I'll stop the there and, uh, with the monologue. The, was that the Sikh? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, I'm a member of the Sikh faith. I'm, you know, it's a very important part of my life and my upbringing. So throughout my legal career, uh, I'm now entering my 28th year of practicing law, throughout my career, starting with law school, I have represented a number of plaintiffs over the years, people mainly who have been denied jobs because of their faith, because of their turban or their beard or their uh, religious bracelet that they wear or because of their name or other bias. And and so I literally have helped dozens of people in this situation. So um, I was uh, working for as a volunteer for a nonprofit called um, the uh, Sikh American Legal and Educational Defense Fund and also the Sikh Coalition. And they referred this gentleman to me. I engaged in a four-year battle with the state over uh, this uh, older gentleman who was applying for a job in the prisons department. And uh, he wanted to be a prison guard. And he had been in the army in India and had worn gas masks and had, you know, maintained his state. So he had a turban and a beard and he had emigrated to the U.S. to be with his children. Um, Well, the the state put him through the ringer. He went through the medical test. He passed them. But because he wears a turban and a beard, uh, they said, you're not going to be able to wear a gas mask and we're not going to let you. And he said, no, no, I I can do that because I've worn a turban and a beard and an accommodation is possible. They wouldn't hear it. Um, The case started under Jerry Brown, but... Uh, the, bulk, the bulk of that case happened under Kamala Harris's tenure as attorney general. And uh, as you know, one of the issues that we're seeing as part of her narrative out there right now is, oh, she's Indian American. And, you know, I was actually pleasantly, uh, you know, hopeful that when she became the attorney general, because of her Indian heritage, she would understand that the uh, the beard is part of the faith, just like many faiths have, yeah. you know, yarmulke and, you know, yeah, and, sure. and, and cyber sidelocks and the Orthodox and the Hasidic uh, uh, traditions respectively. Uh, but no, there was no change in the state's position. Um, what I learned in discovery was that the state allowed accommodations for people who were African-American if they had a skin condition. So if you had a skin condition and you're African-American, you were allowed to wear a beard. But if you had a religious obligation to wear the same beard, it was denied. So this is blatantly, un, uh, you know, violation of Title Seven and and our yeah. state employment laws. So anyway, long story short, she ignored it. She ignored it. She defended it. And and I know from conversations that I had that this was discussed at the highest level because I'm a prominent attorney and I was talking about it in the media. And she's a person who reads the news. She was beginning to get pressure from state organizations. She did not care. So it was only when I was able through my, you know, work in the civil rights space to convene a coalition, a national coalition of civil rights organizations. Uh, on the left, the ACLU, on the right, the Beckett Fund, uh, and in between, everything else. And there were like 30 of us that had a press conference in, in San Francisco really denouncing her 
for taking this illegal position discriminating against this person of faith from India. And uh, on top of that, the DOJ opened up an investigation into okay. her, okay. uh, into, into, into the state, and we ended up settling the case. So when, when, you, when you read news reports, I just saw one cross my email a few minutes ago. The Sikh community remembers that, and a lot of Indian Americans remember that, that when it was crunch time, she did not perceive it to be politically expedient or powerful to do the right thing. It wasn't even like I was asking her to step out of her lane. She did the wrong thing until people in power pressured her. That's Kamala Harris. All right. All right. I want to build on that. Uh, what year again was that, uh, would you say, Harmeet? That lawsuit was like from, I want to say, settled in 2013, I think. But I, I started the case uh, earlier than that, 2013, 2014. I'll get you the exact date. Uh, no, it's um, okay. So, as I, you know, I think of San Francisco. and But what you're saying is there were, as a very liberal place, but there were preferred minorities, uh, right? And, I mean, not, not all minorities, Sikhs had the same status mm-hmm. as, as African-Americans who had injuries or, or whatever you put it. That, yeah, that that's absolutely saying? right. Is yeah. that because so Sikhs it was 2011, to, actually, when that case occurred. But yeah, 11 um, to 14. Boy, Jarndyce sees Jarndyce in California. Huh? <laughs> On it goes. No, the case settled in 2011. So oh, I okay. started the case in 2007. But, okay. uh, you know, there's a lot. I, I'm looking back. There's a lot of media about this. Uh, about okay. This, about this case. So All right, when you say so that. That's right. That's right. You know, and when you see her in, in, in speeches, it's always African-American, African-American, African-American. As I said uh, on Laura's show last night, and as the as people in the Indian-American community will say privately, they won't say it publicly, but they'll say you privately, wow, she never mentions her Indian heritage unless she's asking us for money. Yeah, okay. That's her reputation. Well, what what is it we have here? Do we have uh, a... Um, a- I said, first thing I said last night was San Francisco Democrat, and then I listened. I listened to you. I listened to other people. Is is this a San Francisco Democrat, or is this a political trimmer, you know, uh, adjusting, you know, changing her shape as, as necessary, or is she both? No, no, no. She's, she's not a San Francisco Democrat in any true sense of the word. So look at our, our current district attorney is a excellent example of a San Francisco liberal lawyer, uh, was the public defender, is the son of, uh, you know, weather underground terrorists, uh, one of whom is still incarcerated and wants to eliminate bail and, you know, not, not prosecute graffiti and street yeah, crime. Yeah. And that's a, that's that's the mold, right? Okay. Kamala Harris was none of that. Like she was boosting her numbers by prosecuting exactly those people that the current district attorney doesn't want to touch. And so, so there is no sort of progressive center to this woman. Okay. Um, she has laughed about taking extreme positions, uh, such as covering up uh, the. You know, we had a lab tech in her office who routinely fabricated evidence and caused the wrongful <laughs> convictions of many people. Good and Lord. she covered that up. Yeah. She covered that up. So, you know, I mean, this is, this is something that the ACLU and other groups were very critical of her, you know, her history on criminal justice. And so it, when did that pivot occur from hard on crime to soft on crime? Okay. Well, let me tell you, throughout her career, it has always been focused on the next prize. So when you're district attorney, focusing on attorney general when you're attorney general, focusing on the two jobs of governor and senator. She was definitely flirting with a race for governor. And then uh, another one of Jer- of, of uh, Willie Brown's constellation of people he supports, um, Gavin Newsom got the nod for that. 
And so uh, then she's pivoted to United States Senator and now, of course, uh, President, because as we know, um, Joe Biden isn't going to be able to go the distance based on his appearance. And so this is what's scary is it's all about polling. It's all about figuring out what do I need to be to get to that next place in my life. So there is no sort of center of principle. And um, and that's really striking. So as we saw in the... um, in, in, the, in the Senate race, uh, she began to have some of these progressive overtones. And then finally, when she ran for president, of course, she had to run to the far left. And she's been boxed into some pretty extreme positions that she's now tried a little bit to back off of Medicare for all and some of these things. But, you know, I can tell you that there are a lot of rumblings. Like I got a bunch of text messages yesterday from my far left friends, my Bernie bro friends who are pretty upset about this pick by Joe Biden. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of support she galvanizes. I don't think she adds anything to this yet, quite frankly. Two things on that. Um, One, whether you mean it or not, you know, I I said San Francisco Democrat, you said no, more trimmer, right? What's that? What, what, what's, Mm -hmm. what suits her for the next position, but she's managed to establish if Liz Cheney's right. And I've heard other people say one of the most uh, uh, liberal left records in the Senate comparable to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Is that because that's the way the wind is blowing? Or what's yeah, going? she's only been in the Senate for two years, so okay. remember that as well. You know, that's a fairly recent. That's her current persona. You know, she's a chameleon. Okay, and where do you go after senator? Okay, there are two All places right. to go after senator. You go to governor, maybe of California, although some would say that would be a step down at this point. And you go to uh, you yeah. know the the White House. So, right. so will she? Know? Will she tack left or toward the center now? Well, she's going to have to try to tack toward the center because uh, right. I, I'm sure that what the pollsters are telling her is that. Uh, well, they're, what they're going to tell is, uh, these folks is that they have a conundrum because Biden already is kind of toward the center. He was, uh, you know, one of the few in those debates who would refuse to take, you know, extreme positions on certain issues where everybody else raised their hand. So to his credit, he had some sort of a center. Uh, and I think that when they start doing polling on her and some of her positions, Medicare for all, open borders, yeah, yeah. Uh, felons should be able to vote while they're in yeah. prison. Um, you know, let's let's uh, censor the speech of America. Let's censor the you know president, for God's sake. Uh, you know, I, I think these are some of the things that people are going to say, wait a minute, that's not really what middle America, that's not what people in the purple states don't want to hear that we're going to eliminate fracking jobs in a lot of those swing yeah, states, right. that we're going to uh, promote, promote the, the Green New Deal. But, but Kamala is very, very shrewd. The wind is blowing in the Democratic Party towards the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of the world. San Francisco Kamala Harris would never have gone for the Green New Deal. And this is something that people don't really understand. She was a part of the Democrat business machine in San Francisco. So you had the, you know, far left progressive, you know, homeless advocates. And then you had the middle. So she was part of the uh, respectable, suit-wearing, high-heel shoes-wearing business elite. So the Willie Brown, uh, our former speaker, is part of that. Gavin Newsom is part of that machine. Sure, sure. Um, and, and Kamala Harris. So by, by no means is she a, a AOC Democrat historically. But she's taken a lot of positions that are, that are consistent. Well, she has right? to. Right. She's a, she's a progressive in drag because that's, okay, that's but she, what but, she but, needs to be. But now she, need, but now she needs to reverse and tack to the center. She, well, let's see if she can do that. I don't know how you take every position under the sun and then pick one and have any integrity well, with it. Let, I, that's going to be interesting. Let me ask this about the energy field here. Apart from what she wants to do or thinks she ought to do, 
I thought that um, that they're as worried in the Democratic Party. They're as worried about the uh, the Bernie people and the left as you know the, the purple middle. Um, that, that maybe they would tack to the left. I mean, Biden, you said is sort of center, but a lot of his positions now are, are out there. Uh, it, it, what, what's the stronger force? The tack to the middle now that you're in a general election, or worried about the Bernie people and the, and the left and not losing faith with you? You said a lot of them are very upset about her. Well, you know, it's, I think COVID has injected a whole X factor into this election that we couldn't have predicted during the primary. Sure. Um, you know, the primary shook out before this happened, and you know, had had people had foreboding, foreshadowing that COVID would occur, they might have picked a different, you know, wartime president, as it were. Uh, but, but what they have now is Joe Biden. They're stuck with him. And they, I think, have bolstered with Kamala because she's younger and more energetic, but she's really not likable. Um, so to your question about tacking toward the center, I think they have to do that because that's the traditional, yeah. uh, that's the traditional trope of both parties. In a general election, the president is already, you know, kind of got his path laid out. I don't think he's going to change anything. But, but, you know, what what's the constituency in Pennsylvania for eliminating fracking jobs right, right, and right. you know for the Green New Deal or eliminating coal mining and you know Appalachia or um, you know uh, eliminating your ability to get hydroxychloroquine if the doctor doesn't say so and Medicare for all. Like, you know, so I I hope the Trump campaign really hones in on some of these subtleties. You cannot trust Kamala Harris because she has literally taken both sides of most positions in her career. Do you think the political necessity here or the political prudent, prudent way is for her to tack to the center? The, the both of them tack to the center rather than to the left, not to worry about the burning people. They got no place else to go. I don't think they can afford to do that. Because I think that they're in a challenge election, and I don't think they can afford to leave votes on the table. So I guess one way to do that would be to allow Kamala to continue to play her, you know, progressive and drag role, and Joe be the, you know, reasonable moderate, as it were. Um, I just don't think it was thought through well. I mean, a lot of people I saw the week before, I saw Hannity and a bunch of others say, "Oh yeah, it's going to be Kamala." I saw that. I, I was like, "That." so dumb because what does she add to the ticket uh she's like a you know kind of aggressive and you know left and can't be trusted she's not an authentic liberal like karen bass would have been an authentic liberal um you know the uh, mayor of atlanta would have been a sort of pragmatic uh, moderate but how can Uh, can, he picks her if i heard you correctly i mean how can she do what you just said which is joe sort of stays there in the in the messy middle leading leaning left and she's out there left she has to reconcile her view to his view right or not. You would think. Oh, you but would maybe think, not, but, but I don't know not. how I don't know how Joe Biden runs okay, that's the on a problem. ticket with, that's a, with the problem. a woman who 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 called him a racist. Yeah. Um and right. with a woman who said she believes that he raped somebody. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that's no kidding. Uh, kind of bizarre. Yeah, no I wouldn't kidding. be in the same room with that person, much less running for an office with them. Uh, so. All right. Um, I have uh, two other questions or sideline questions that I do want to talk. You got time to talk about education for a little bit after this? Absolutely. Okay, good. Great. Um, one uh, on, on the black vote. Do you have any sense of this? I've heard a lot of people say, like Peter uh, Kersenow and some others, that the polling is such that Trump may get in in the high teens. If he gets in the high teens, he's won this thing, hasn't he? And is that possible? Uh, black vote in he had eight or something, right? If he gets to 12, is that possible, do you think? Black men, I think it's black, possible. Black I mean, you are seeing, 
you, you are seeing some strong voices emerge. You just saw yesterday, and I hope again we use this. But you saw the the mayor, the uh, police chief of Seattle, a powerful yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you know respectable black woman, yeah. resign because she was treated like yeah. dirt by the white progressive establishment yeah. in yeah. that city. Yeah. And and you know what? I don't think African Americans are in favor of rioting, looting, no. No, not. shooting, and the destruction of families and inner cities in America. People don't want that, and it has become very extreme. Now, I'm saying that from my lovely perch in Sonoma. I do not experience any of those things, but I have a television, and I can see it, and I used to live in the Bronx, and yeah. I know that, uh, you know, those people feel trapped in a sense, and and they're beginning to increasingly feel abandoned when you see yeah. uh, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, in Chicago. Right. She could not care less about the children being shot in her city. Now, it's all about George Floyd. It's all about sure, sure. Uh, Jesse Smollett. You know, she it's, got an it's, argument it's with her chief. Stuff. She got an argument with her chief right. on TV. Yeah. Who's also African-American. That's correct. You know, so, so I just think, I, I think the left is increasingly abandoning um you know, the pretense, but, but what is so offensive about Joe Biden and his recent rhetoric on race is that even though he has a fairly inflammatory, you know, yellow dog Democrat, you know, sort of terrible uh, history of negative remarks about, you know, racial jungles and busing and et cetera, like a lot of yeah, stuff that yeah. is really cringeworthy. He, he, he now just thinks, well, I've, I've, uh, I, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've got the black vote and Hey, I've got another right. black person here on the ticket. So I don't need to focus on that. Like he was already focusing on the Latino vote and pandering to Latinos and, and assuming his privilege, if you will, as a Democrat who can count on the black right. vote. Well, I think what's really going to happen is people may look at this and we are hammering in the Republican side and I am hammering her history of locking up more black men in San Francisco probably than any other district and, attorney and, and is in the that, is last that the way to go? Years. Is that the way to go rather than attacking her as a, as a liberal? We can attack her on all of these things. There's a menu okay. of things to attack on. Right, but it's the, odd. Hypocrisy, it's odd. the hypocrisy is definitely okay. one. The, um, the, you know, lack of caring about the community she's now supposedly supposed to deliver is another. And the lack of solutions for people, you know, there's no solutions being offered by her uh, to the African American community's woes in this country, and people being left behind during COVID and so forth. It's all about increasing taxes. How is our tax increase is going to okay. solve America's inner city problems? They right. are not. Okay. Do you think? Uh, I'm just curious. Do you think um, the strategy now is that she will be out and around, or will she be in a bunker like uh, like Joe? Oh, she's going to be out and around. She's a okay. proxy. All right. So she's She's younger. She has energy. She's, you know, she's got, she's been campaigning for office since, you know, 2000. Like I said, we're going to see a lot more of her than we're going to see Joe Biden the next month. Absolutely. Okay. So she doesn't make faux pas like he does. She's very, very scripted. Very, 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 very polished. Very, very smooth. She's very smooth smooth. and laughs a lot when, when she's confronted. Laughs a lot in the Oh, yeah. kind of weird way but yeah. she's very yeah. she's yeah. very yeah. she's very slick yeah she's slick. very slick all right so so then i think i think maybe i disagree with carl rove he said uh the white house should not worry about her should just talk about biden but she's going to be the prominent person i mean she's overshadowing him already right already yeah carl rove is wrong um uh Joe Biden, look, first of all, I'm being harsh to Mr. Biden, Senator Biden, former Vice President Biden, but he's he's not all there. And I think it's really cruel that his 
family is propping him up at this point. He, he really should be, you know, not running for office. He is not capable of debating the president, okay. running for office, leaving the bunker. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure his appearances from the bunker involve a teleprompter on the other side, right. from what I can tell. And so, you know, he's not capable of running the, the rest of this right. campaign. So, so, you could so have said- they, they must run her. She'll be out there. She'll be making speeches. And then you must She's run against a, her. a good campaigner. Then you must run against well, her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have to. We cannot, okay. you know, frankly, the president has already come out swinging. I think uh, the vice president, you know, we, we he gets overshadowed in a way, but I remember his debate with Tim Kaine in 2016. Yeah, yeah. No, he's very uh, he had some pretty sharp elbows. He was very well prepared, and he did a great job. So I don't t- think he's going to take any of her BS. All right, so, so. in two sentences, what's the line that uh, Trump-Pence should take on Kamala? She is... She is a phony. You cannot trust her. And she embodies the worst of the left. All right. Okay. Those, they're not inconsistent. But if she embodies the worst of the left and she's phony, she can be talked out of it. No? Uh, who's going to talk her out of it? Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> In okay. the White House. Who's talking her out of okay. it? It's not okay. going to be Joe okay. Biden talking her out of it. Look, yeah. look. I mean, look, this, this woman has always fallen upward in her yeah, career. There's only one place to go. She, right. she cannot be trusted. She will say... And, and her history shows she will say and do literally anything to get ahead. But then the, well, the attack is made that she's, you know, the heart, heart and soul of the left. But that's a matter of convenience. She can shift. So you can't really nail her with being a person of the left. But uh, So I, I said this yesterday. Give me a Bernie Sanders who I know what I'm deal. dealing with. A real deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Than this person who I cannot trust. And I think that's how a lot of people on the left feel, too. It's just if you're making, you see my point, if you're making a strong case that the country's going to go over the left cliff, you want to, you can make it easier with Bernie than an opportunist who might shift and not take the country over the cliff. See what I'm saying? I suppose that's, that's a, I think that's more of an academic argument because right now we have this COVID, we have this, we have this COVID situation. I I deserve that. Just yesterday, (laughs) just yesterday I saw a hit from, from somewhere. I, well, I I consider it a hit, uh, where, you know, a couple of my Bernie bro friends in, in politics in California sent me this article about, she's the darling of Silicon Valley. Well, that's going to put the hackles up of the American okay. left. So all while right. she's out there pounding the table and saying, okay. oh, yes, I want, you know, Medicare for all and open borders and let people out and cancel bail, the opposite of the position she took when she was district attorney right. and attorney general, um, you know, they're not okay. going to trust her that once okay. she gets into the White House, she isn't going to just, you know, be, be corporate. And, right. and you know, and, and so... So she is not going to be like, I don't, I do not see my Bernie bros walking precincts for her, turning out for her. They don't like her. They spend a lot of time during the election campaigning against her and castigating her. I don't think that divide can necessarily be breached. So 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 she's going to try hard for the center, but I don't know how successful that's going to be. So this is not bad. This is not bad for Trump Pence then. Not bad, right? I don't think it is bad. I, you know, I think a couple of reporters yesterday asked me, what do you think about uh, you know, is this a good pick? I said, yeah, it's great for Republicans. Okay, good. All right. All right. Are you, uh, this is by way of transition. You put me in my place. Called me an academic. Academic. <laughs> Fair enough. Now let's go to higher education. What are they doing? I mean, I know what they're doing. Let me put it this way. I wrote a book called Is College Worth It? If you're Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, you can charge anything, not show up. But if you give them that degree, they're going to come and their parents are going to pay. Or they're not going to come. Well, because if ever anybody had a doubt about that, the Exhibit A is uh, Harvard doing, you know, 
University of Phoenix uh, distance learning right. and charging the same amount. Uh, they're actually being sued in a class yeah. action lawsuit by a, yeah. by a young man in California for that. But it, it doesn't matter, really. It's, it's clearly just about the credential. Yeah, and so, sure. um, you know, we can probably, you know, if, if there were a market, uh, then there would, be, there would be some movement in that market. But there is no market for that upper echelon, like you mentioned. And I went to, I, I, I went to the humble college on the hill of Dartmouth and they're doing the same thing. And I have a young nephew, my brother's son, who is, uh, was slated to go to college in the fall. And, you know, two months ago I called him up and and I said, listen, kid, don't, (laughs) it's not worth it. You're going to be doing distance learning. You're going to be robbed of your freshman year, like get a job. I'm sure your dad can help you get a job. I'll help you get a job. Like take a year, you know, have fun and go to college next year when hopefully this COVID thing is past us. It's right. not worth it. Right. And he agreed with me. So I have yeah. a little influence on my uh, nephew. There's so. one. There's one. See, There's I, one, one at a time. And this is what <laughs> I wanted to get to. But, I mean, I, I, I think you'd agree with me that no matter what, I went to Williams, you know, same thing. And if you get if you get a degree from one of these places, you know, the way the world works, your, your goal. So, you know, you know they'll mm-hmm. put more members of the family to work to pay the tuition. And if, you know, you don't show, they'll nobody's going to drop out of Harvard because of this, right? I mean, is that true? Nobody. Correct. All right. Of course so, not. All right, so captive audience. Okay, but, and people will pay, and it'll be worth it over the course of their right. career. Now, in my book, uh, "Is College Worth It?" Uh, we did a th- thing that really ticked off the higher ed people. We did about twenty pages of lists of colleges with return on investment, just return on investment. Okay, <laughs> yeah, and most of yeah. them, most of them were in the negative numbers. You know, uh, yeah, absolutely, so, no surprise. Now, I mean, I'm an old fashioned guy. I, I was a philosophy and classics major, so I wasn't in it for the money. You know. Uh, I was a classics major. Good, there you go. See, that's the best <laughs> yeah. major. That's the best. I can major. read my ancient Greek. Well, I can't. You're ahead of me. Better at Dartmouth than Williams, I guess. <laughs> okay, but you said, and this is what I am hoping, because I've been in this education business now 50 years. This could be the moment, right, when the kind of advice that you gave uh, to your um, nephew might be taken by more people. I hope so. I mean, you know, I think, I think, uh, look, I, I filed a lawsuit. Just, it's a little slightly different topic, but, but along the same thread. I filed this lawsuit, class action lawsuit against the state of California for, for betraying the children in the lower education, K through 12. And no issue has resonated more in my career with more people asking me for help than this issue because everybody cares about their kids. Everybody cares about the education and the future of their children. And it is not political across the political spectrum. People are shocked and betrayed by the cynical, uh, abject failures of our education industrial complex. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that is, I mean, I had Democrats write to me and say, Harmeet, don't quote me, but I never voted. I didn't vote for president Trump, but man, this is driving me nuts. And, uh, and so That's I think, right. yeah, people are going to say, well, my God, like, could my kid have gotten the college degree all along from, you know, watching some canned lectures of some, you know, you know, sort of Renaissance, you know, history uh, from, you know, tw- 2015? Could, could, like, what am I paying for? The emperor has no clothes. Yeah. I do think that this is going to cause a lot of reexamination of that issue. Now, I've been saying it for years. You've been saying it for years. And people haven't gotten it because at the end of the day, it. you know, it's an insurance policy. But, I mean, what are they getting for it? And so I think you're nuts. To, I, I, all the kids I know, in fact, who are in college, I'm like, take a gap. Take a year off. Take a gap year. College will still be there. They'll still take your money next year. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, Don't couple, waste your money this year. A couple of arrows for your quiver. Uh, there is something called a college learning assessment, which is a test of how much you learn in college. It was done at University of North mm-hmm. Carolina, Chapel Hill, and turned out when they tested the sophomores, they knew less than when they tested them as freshmen. So that's that, that's no surprise. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, you know, I don't know if they were more sober, but they were certainly less learned. So uh, there's yep. there's that. But I agree with you about the schools. I had um, an invitation to address uh, by Zoom. Uh, some Wall Street investors on this whole question of uh, association group on should kids go back to school. They said, we're going to have 70 people for you on the call. They had 320 people, you know, and it's not not my good looks. Uh, And they were passionate about this. And, you know, are we sacrificing? And I made the case that you probably could argue that more high school kids have killed themselves during the COVID period, um, very possibly because of COVID and isolation that it brought, that have died from COVID itself, just the suicide. Well, put, put aside the child California, abuse. One kid, in right, California, right, one right, kid right, has died right, of COVID. Right. A kid with comorbidity, many kids have committed suicide. That's There's right. your statistic. And what about child abuse? And what about the isolation? So are we sacrificing? And hunger. And right, hunger. All right. of these things are mentioned in my brief. Hunger. Okay, good. Uh, sexual good. assault, uh, physical assault, uh, depression. Uh, digital dependency, good, uh, good. the the regression of children with special needs who require hands-on education and training. Okay, and then, you know, and whatever happened to the uh, black lives, minds of young black lives? Do, do black young black minds matter? Uh, I mean, uh, well, what about poor? I mean, for whom is school the best, uh, the, the, the saving place, whether they learn anything or not? For a lot of poor kids, it's the safest place they go. My wife pointed the out. Only she's place a, they get a meal. Well, she's a, my wife works in the inner city schools here. Good conservative lady that she is, and she said you don't see a black poor black kids shooting up their schools because it's a safe place for a lot of these poor kids. And I think I thought it yeah. was a profound point. So what about them? What happens to them in all this? So, so when you read our brief, I think you'll like it. Right. Uh, it really focuses on how the suspension of education in California hit the poor, hits minorities, and hits the disabled right. worst of all. Because, you know, people who are like Gavin Newsom, multimillionaires with four kids, they can hire tutors. Most of my friends who That's send right. their kids to Catholic schools or That's parochial right. schools That's and right. they have five kids, That's they right. have the means. The mom doesn't work. They're going to, you know, their kids will get educated. It's the people who have two parent or single parent households, some of our parents in our lawsuit, who the mom has to pick between uh, supervising the child who is autistic, getting the fake distance learning or having a job. And so this is the stark choice that the that the rich left in California has imposed on American families. Plus, and it's not just California, but it's mainly California because no other state has totally shut down education. Yeah, plus, L.A. Unified, the teachers' union's behavior here has been shameful. Shameful. Uh, and, uh, you know, here in Fairfax County, Fairfax County, for God's sakes. Well, it's terrible. It's not safe. It's not healthy. But give us, you know, a couple billion dollars and we'll find a way to do it. Uh, you know, the usual yeah. bribery and extortion. All right, we want to see that brief. I'm hoping this is the moment when people will pause. I'll tell you one other data point I got, uh, at least it was reported. I got a friend in the uh, in, in the virtual school business. He said their, their, their business obviously is thriving, though it doesn't work for a lot of kids. But uh, homeschooling apparently is doubling. Now, a lot of parents can't do it for one of the reasons you just gave. But some parents can, and now more parents are looking to it as an alternative. That's mostly affluent to parent families, but 
um, you know, people are saying, what do we need this institution for? And this doesn't even raise the question when I'm arguing so strongly for school as you are, what the hell are they learning in those schools? Oh Cause, yeah. Cause I, I mean, could go, know, I the, could go on, you know, that's a, I could so, go so, on. So, you know, what's interesting, uh, is that we have this, uh, we have this wealthy conservative elite and I, I was trying to get support for this lawsuit for the schools. And I, I spoke to a couple of billionaires or their proxies and they said, the schools are bad. I'm homeschooling my kids. I think it's better for the schools to fail. Now yeah. that's nice from your, you know, from, yeah. from your Aspen home where you flew on your Gulfstream jet. But yeah. in real life, most people right. don't have those choices. In real life, working women will be set back by decades if they have to make that choice between uh, pursuing their own economic uh, independence and, and, and support for their families versus doing the job that we pay tens of thousands of dollars of family and taxes in California there you go. to accomplish. And, and so, you know, if, if, if the money we're able to follow, I mean, in a utopia, the money we pay in taxes, I, and I believe in public education. I believe every I child should be educated uh, because, uh, <laughs> because, the, uh, because the alternative is, is, uh, is horrific. Um, uh, then people would have choices. People would be able to, I, I talked to a family a few days ago, a lawyer, who told me his, you know, his wife is taking their large family of small children and moving to a different state for the fall. And he won't be able to see his family because she wants the kids to get educated in a real school because the kids are climbing up the walls. Some kids do not socialize well at home and they don't learn watching staring at a screen I, for all these years we've been oh, that's right. my mom was very strict about it you know and that's why i'm where i am it was one hour a day of television that's, right. that's it no, you that's know right. that's and, right uh so. yeah no you're you're you're, abs- you're absolutely right uh, by the way on the kids side uh the best science i've seen from people i trust is that just the spring meant 50 percent loss of uh, last year's reading uh, achievement and 70 percent of the math achievement uh, the math goes first and, uh, you know, talk about life skills. Well, we'll see if this is an opportunity for people to take another look and another thought, both at higher ed and ed in general. But, um, I think we're, you know, we're sacrificing an awful lot, uh, under the guise of this, uh, COVID thing. And I'm 77. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's not the same and it, it ain't the same. And, uh, you don't sacrifice the young in order to, keep a couple of years for me, you know, if, if it comes to that, I don't mean to be dramatic, but you know, it, it is, uh, we, we have trade-offs in life. And, uh, you know, as, as Scott Atlas said, you know, pay attention to the vulnerable population, but kids are not vulnerable. They're just not vulnerable. Well, it's Scott is one of our experts in this lawsuit. Oh, so good. when I send great. it to you, you will great. see that. Thank you, Harmate. This has been great and a uh, delight to talk to you. And you're one of the three or four people that, uh, when that's on, the TV's on, I, you know, I usually am doing something else, but I put it down when you come on. You're always good. Always worth that's listening. That's so to. kind. I really appreciate it. Thank and you. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you as well. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. That does it, Claude, for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. 